Many of us, we enjoy the build-up to Christmas Day as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, and we give and receive gifts and spend some time with family and friends. If we're lucky, we have a little bit of that white stuff on the ground, but not too much, because too much is, you know, it just needs to be kind of that right level. But I want you, I want you to think back to when you were a kid. Let's say maybe somewhere between, I don't know, like, like four and nine. And recall how excited you were then about Christmas. Now, I'm, I'm generalizing, of course, and there are going to be some of us who don't have fond memories between four and nine. But I think for most of us, that was probably an exciting time looking forward to Christmas. I can remember getting up at like four in the morning and tiptoeing down to the tree to see what gifts were wrapped there. And, and can we just, just be like real for a second? I mean, most kids, that's really all they care about on Christmas, right? It's, it's the gifts that they get to open. And I would imagine that most of us here generally experienced that same sort of excitement at the prospect of opening things that we had looked forward to receiving all year long. Now, let's, let's fast forward to today, right here, right now, as you sit here listening to me. Well, I would guess that many of us really enjoy the Christmas season, and by your showing of hands, I think most of us do, it's probably fair to say that most of us aren't nearly as excited about Christmas today as when we were kids. And I'll speak for myself and admit that, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy everything about the Christmas season, and I certainly appreciate celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, but it's, at least for me, not the same as when I was younger with the same degree of wonderment and anticipation I used to have. And I would guess that for many of us, it's kind of the same thing. And as I was studying and preparing for this sermon, I started to ask myself, why? Why is it that I'm not as excited as I used to be? I, I was more excited about opening some presents than I am now about celebrating the birth of my king. Why is that? And the best answer that I could come up with is that I've kind of grown a little hardened to the whole season, due in part to like the extreme commercialization of everything, but also due to a, a familiarity with the whole Christmas story. You know, been there, done that for, for 36 years now. And, and start to lack a real appreciation for what I'm actually celebrating. Yes, I know it's a big deal, a really big deal, that God sent his son to be born a man and to ultimately die an atoning death for us. And, and that is an amazing truth. But I think oftentimes for me, and maybe you can relate to that during this Christmas season, I allow that information to just kind of stay up in my head and it doesn't really make its way down to my heart enough to where it's really moving me with, with excitement and joy and anticipation at what we are celebrating. And so it's my hope and prayer that as we study gifts 
this Christmas season, we'd all be moved to the same sort of excitement and anticipation and joy that we used to have as kids. As we're reminded of the amazing gifts that we've been given through the birth of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so, if you would open with me to Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read through the story of the visit of the wise men to Jesus when he was uh, born. So as you turn to Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to pray. Father God, we praise you and thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of the amazing gift of your Son. I pray, Lord, that your word would come alive to us today, that you would speak to our hearts, you would encourage us, you would, you would teach us, Lord. I pray that I would be wholly yielded to you and you would move through me with your spirit, God, and our hearts would all be open to being changed by you. I pray all this, Lord, to the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're just going to read through these first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2, and then I'm going to break down the passage, and we're going to go over some of the important background, and then we're going to look at the, the gift giver's journey, and then we're going to look at the gift of gold at the end. So that's our little outline that we're going to go through. And so we begin by reading the passage and diving into the background a little bit. And you can read along with me from Matthew chapter 2, verses one through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, I want to break this down, go over some key points of background so we can understand some context, and that will help us to understand 
over the next several weeks what we're studying, all right? So first, I want us to look at the setting here. And there are three important places that we need to know about. We got Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and the east. Now, most of us are probably very familiar with what Jerusalem and Bethlehem are, right? They are cities in Israel. Jerusalem is the uh, center of all Judaism because the temple has been rebuilt there. And it is where much of the cultural identity of the Jewish people are tied up. And though Herod had his palace in Jericho, that's where he built his palace, he spent much of his time in Jerusalem. Now Bethlehem, on the other hand, was a tiny little podunk town, kind of out of the way, about six miles south of Jerusalem. There were a lot of um, inns there, at least that's what they think from the historical excavation, because it was on the major road from the south to Jerusalem. And so that is Jerusalem and Bethlehem, two places mentioned. How about the third, the east? Well, the east is the region from which the wise men traveled. And though we don't know with any degree of certainty, this most likely refers to the Parthian Empire, which controlled the lands formerly ruled by Babylon and Persia. I think it's present-day Iran and Iraq. And this is on the other side of the Syrian desert. Syrian desert is kind of a no-man's land between the Parthian Empire and Israel. The only way to really get from Parthia to Israel was to go all the way around, up, up into present-day Turkey, and then down into Palestine, which was the name of the province. Now, it's important that we know that the Parthian Empire was a rival to the Roman Empire and fought against Rome for control of Palestine. In fact, the Parthians had invaded Palestine as recently as 40 BC and killed Herod the Great's brother and forced Herod to flee to Rome. Herod, while he was in Rome, was then appointed ruler of Palestine and sent back to go and fight off the Parthians. And so with the aid of the Roman legions, he fought back the Parthians and retook Jerusalem and Palestine. So we fast forward to the time of our story that we just read, and there were many pro-Parthian groups that were fomenting rebellion in Palestine and hoping for the Parthians to attack again and retake control from Herod. So you can understand why Herod would take a great interest in these wise men who very likely arrived from somewhere in this rival empire, especially when they came asking about the birth of a new king. So that's kind of the setting and some historical context and background to give us some color to the story. What about the two main characters. Well, we have Herod and we have the wise men. Yeah, a group of characters, right? Herod and the wise men. We need some background on these guys. Well, Herod was also known as Herod I or Herod the Great, and he had been ruling the Palestine province for the Romans for over 30 years by the time of our story. He was a prolific builder 
being the one responsible for rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed over 500 years ago by the Babylonians. But he was also a brutal tyrant, killing anyone he thought was a rival, friends, even several of his own sons and his wife and his mother-in-law, which, eh, understand that. (laughs) Now, historically, we know from the record that he started his reign in 37 B.C. and died in 4 B.C. That's what history tells us. And when he died, his kingdom was separated and given to his three living sons. And you can see their respective territories on the map. Herod Achelius, Herod Antipas, and Philip. Now, if you're paying attention to the dates of Herod's reign, and in particular his death in 4 BC, then you should realize, if you know the rest of Luke chapter 2, that Jesus was not born in 1 AD or 0 AD, as is so commonly thought. He was born, if you match up the historical record and Luke chapter 2, sometime before Herod's death in 4 BC. As we'll see in a bit, most likely in 5 or 6 BC. Now, I want you all to note that we need to put question marks next to a lot of the dates in the little timeline I have up there. Those are approximations, those are guesses. We don't quite know exactly all of those dates, but that is a pretty good order of the way things likely happened, according to Scripture informed by what we know from history. And, and so, while we're on the subject of the timing of Jesus' birth, just kind of a little aside, to be clear, Jesus was not born on December 25th. Uh, that's just the date of the pagan holiday where the Romans celebrated the winter solstice and the early church appropriated that date trying to repurpose and redeem it, all right? Um, there are all kinds of uh, theories based off of when John the Baptist was born and then when he was conceived, all based off of Luke chapter 1. A lot of theologians and historians think Jesus would have actually been born either in the spring or September. Probably September 27th. I think that was (laughs) his birthday. (laughs) Look at that. That's my birthday too. (laughs) It's amazing how that works out. (laughs) But regardless of the year and month of Jesus' birth, we, we know that Herod the Great was ruling throughout the visit from these wise men. And there was all kinds of turmoil because of the Parthian Empire and the Romans and the friction going on there. So we have these wise men coming from Parthia, most likely. That doesn't say that in Scripture. I'm kind of reading that into it. just want to be clear. But who were these guys? Who were the wise men? Well, the wise men or magi as they are also called in the Greek, it's Magali. Um, Though they um, are referred to traditionally as the three wise men, we don't really know how many there were. Um, They were, however, from the historical record, experts in astronomy, 
and reading the stars. They interpreted dreams and gave advice to the rulers and the kings over them. They were very educated, learned men who held positions of tremendous influence and power. Now, they're also referenced throughout the book of Daniel, if you go back and read the book of Daniel, though they can never do the same things that Daniel can do. And in fact, during the reign of King Darius, Daniel is actually put in charge of them because of how the Holy Spirit moves through Daniel so effectively. Now, some scholars even believe that the order of wise men that Daniel led in Babylon is the same order that these wise men visiting baby Jesus come from. Now, to be clear, that's speculation. Um, But it's kind of cool to think about it that way, if that was, in fact, how it played out. And, And again, while there's no way that we can know from Scripture that was the case, it isn't hard to imagine Daniel sharing Old Testament prophecy with the wise men that he oversaw. Perhaps Daniel shared Balaam's prophecy from Numbers 24, 17, which says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Or maybe Isaiah's prophecy from Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and and kings to the brightness of your rising. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Now, if these wise men were from Babylon, which was a major city in the Parthian Empire, and they were a part of Daniel's order of Magi, then they may also have been familiar with Daniel's prophecy outlined in Daniel chapter 9 of the 70 weeks, if you kind of remember that from Daniel chapter 9, that would pass before the Messiah's birth. If that was the case, then when these wise men saw the star in the sky, they would have known that the time had come because it perfectly corresponds with the 70 weeks, depending on how you interpret it, that Daniel prophesied. Now again, I want to be very clear that that's a lot of academic conjecture. All right, I think it's really cool to think about and it kind of does give some sort of explanation as to how they may have known where to look for the king of the Jews. But here's what we know from Scripture very clearly. We know that these men were looking for the king of the Jews. We don't know their names. We don't know how many there were. The traditional number of three just comes from the number of gifts that they gave. And we don't know why they actually knew to look for the king of the Jews. So they're actually shrouded in a lot of mystery. But what we do know is that when they saw this star, which probably wasn't even an actual star since it disappeared seemingly at some point, 
But when they see this special light in the heavens, they get their entourage together and they make the long journey to Jerusalem. A journey that, depending on where they were in the east, would have taken them all the way around the Syrian desert and down to Palestine, which would have taken several months at best, at the fastest. So we have, we have that background, right? We, we, we understand some of the setting and some of the characters. Now I want to look at the story itself, and I want to focus on the journey of these gift givers. The gift giver's journey. And I want to draw our attention, and this kind of now goes back to the beginning here. I want to draw our attention to the determination and anticipation and excitement of the Magi looking forward to finding the king of the Jews. Despite several different obstacles that stood before them and the new king they sought. And as each of these obstacles are mentioned, I just want us to kind of take mental notes as to how these same obstacles may affect our own excitement and our own joy at celebrating the birth of Jesus. All right, you with me? So the first obstacle the Magi faced was the difficulty and distance of the journey they were making. Now, I put a lot of pictures from American Ninja Warrior up there because it's got really cool obstacles that people have to get through. So that's the kind of the thing I got going on here with my theme. All right? So we got the difficulty and distance of the journey that they were making. To travel hundreds of miles from the east, from Parthia to Jerusalem, was dangerous and costly in both time and money. But this didn't deter the Magi. They saw the prophesied light and excitedly moved in its direction to receive clarity as to who this new king was. Now, let's be a little introspective here. How often do we get overwhelmed when the journey of life gets difficult and costly and it seems like we have so far to go? It's so easy to lose our joy and excitement in those moments, isn't it? We've got to recognize how the enemy seeks to use the difficulty that we face to take our eyes off of Jesus and focus our vision back on ourselves and our own circumstances. And he certainly will do that during these next couple of weeks as we should be looking forward to celebrating the birth of our Savior. Well, the Magi eventually arrive in Jerusalem. And apparently the star has disappeared at this point because they start asking where the king is. They don't know where to go any more from here. Naturally, when this entourage, and they would have traveled in a large entourage, it never would have been just a couple of magi going around the desert. It would have been a large group of people, especially given how influential they likely were and powerful. Well, when they arrived from the east, you can imagine, given the tension between Parthia and Rome, that this would stir up a lot of commotion in Jerusalem. And verse 3 tells us that both Herod and the people are troubled. Herod is told the prophecy from Micah 
5.2 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And then he secretly calls the Magi to him and tells them to look in Bethlehem and report back when they find the child because he wants to worship him. Which, of course, we know is a lie. He just wants to kill him because he's a threat to his rule. And this leads to the second obstacle that the Magi faced. The Magi had to overcome a general disinterest and distraction of the people around them. The Jews were pretty much disinterested at the fact that their prophesied king had been born, and they were just distracted by all the different things that they were selfishly pursuing for themselves. Wanting their way. Now this light had appeared up to two years earlier. And we know this because a little later on in the chapter, Herod kills all the male children to and under in and around Bethlehem. Why would he do that? Because when he called the Magi to him and asked when the star appeared, they would have told him. And then when they didn't report back to him, he would have gone and tried to wipe them all out. That's what happened. So we know that this star, this light, appeared up to two years before, and yet the Jews seemed oblivious to the reality that their Messiah had come. They were so distracted with overthrowing the rule of the Romans and finding someone who could do what they wanted done that they missed the even greater gift that the Lord had given them. They were so distracted with their own selfish pursuits that they became disinterested in what God was doing right then and right there in their lives. How many of us get our excitement and joy over what the Lord is doing around us stolen because we're foolishly focusing on ourselves and we're distracted from the truly important moments that God would have us experience. This Christmas season, the enemy will try to get us to focus on anything other than Jesus, especially focusing on ourselves. We can't fall for those distractions and become disinterested in the spiritual significance of what we are celebrating. The Magi, they they fought through the disinterest and distraction and made their way to Bethlehem. And verse 10 tells us that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. If I were you, I would underline that. Why? Well, because the star has seemingly reappeared. And it leads them directly to the house where the king was. Now, there are no exclamation points in the Greek. So to repeat and to use these kind of superlatives here is meant to show us that the Magi were really, really, really excited. Like jumping for joy, hip, hip, hooray. Because the star was back. And they were finally going to find what they had been seeking for so long. What had been prophesied for so long. But what they found could very well have been a major disappointment. And this is the third obstacle that they had to overcome. Their own potential disappointment and unmet expectations. 
See, instead of finding someone born to a powerful and wealthy family with great influence, they find a young child born to peasants. Joseph was a day laborer who could barely make ends meet, scraping by in the backwaters of Bethlehem. Notice that they weren't in a stable and there was no manger. The text says that they were at a house. And Jesus wasn't an infant. He's described as a child with his mother. So all of those little nativity scenes we have of the Magi there with the shepherds, yeah, you should just get rid of them because they're all wrong. I mean, I guess it's a nice little tradition to be factually inaccurate, but that's okay. I mean, you know, the Lord knows our hearts. But the point is that what the Magi found is certainly not what they expected. How many of us pursue Jesus expecting to experience and to find blessing and goodness and prosperity only to instead encounter really hard times, difficulty, pain. And that can certainly turn into disappointment and disappointment to bitterness and bitterness anger at God. You can be sure that the enemy will try to use disappointment to draw us away from the Lord so that we might insist on our own expectations being met. But we cannot fall into that trap. Jesus tells us very plainly that we'll experience hardships and trials throughout this life. John 16, 33, memorize it. But amen, that, praise God that he is good and he loves us and he will continue to work to refine us through those difficult times so that we would be able to walk more closely with him, even as he walks through it with us. Can't fall to that disappointment. It can so quickly sap our joy and excitement about our God. Thankfully, the Magi they pushed aside any potential disappointment and ignored any previous expectations they had. And the text says that they fell down and worshipped Jesus. And here we see the final obstacle they overcame, their own pride and dignity. Despite their very high station as advisors to the rulers of their country, these magi killed their own pride and self-importance. And in their excitement and joy, they readily fell to the ground and worshipped this little boy. The text gives no indication that they gave this sort of greeting to Herod. In fact, very subtly, Luke doesn't refer to Herod as king any longer in the chapter, once the wise men bow down and worship Jesus as king. I think that's a, a cool little narrative there. Herod the king, Herod the king, Herod the king, worship Jesus. Yeah, that guy Herod, yeah, Herod, that, that, that guy Herod there. <laughs> Why did the Magi do this? Well, 
because they knew that this was the king of the Jews, the prophesied one. The one that Daniel described in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 as one like a son of man to whom was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Amen? That is our king. But here we see perhaps the greatest obstacle to seeking Jesus and excitedly and joyfully worshiping him. And that is our own pride, our desire to be rulers of our own kingdoms. At the end of the day, the biggest hindrance to our spiritual excitement is oftentimes our own self-importance. We think we know best and we want it our way. But by the grace of God, we cannot fall into that trap. We have to seek the Lord humbly, pushing aside any pride and self-importance we may have. Not relying on our own understanding, not, not relying on our own deceitful hearts to do what we seem is best. But, but seeking the Lord and His way, His purposes serving him and excitedly falling down at his feet in worship. Thankfully, all these obstacles were overcome by the Magi, and they sought the young king of kings until they found him, and finding him, they worshipped him, giving him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And in our final minutes together, I'm just going to briefly break down this first gift that the Magi gave to Jesus, which was the gift of gold. Now, overcoming all of these obstacles, the first thing that the Magi excitedly and joyfully offered to Jesus was their submission to him as their king. And this is, this is hugely important. You see, in the ancient world, especially in the East, where these Magi came from, no one would ever appear before their king without offering gold. It is what you did. And they did this because this acknowledged the king who they were appearing before as the one who is in authority over them, to whom all their possessions, all their motivations, all of their services belonged. Presenting gold to someone like this was a clear symbol of the presenter's submission and obedience to the one to whom they made the offering. And it's here that we begin to see why the Magi were so joyful and excited. Because in Jesus, they found someone who they knew they could place all of their trust, all of their devotion all of their love, all of their fealty, because they knew that he was prophesied to be the greatest king the world will ever know, whose kingdom would be without end. What's even better for us is that we have the benefit of hindsight, knowing that Jesus is the Son of God. And he wasn't just some earthly king, he is the eternal king of the heavens, who will reign forever and ever who was born a man and who lived a perfect life and then who died a death 
that all of us who would present our gold to him, who would bow our knees to him as king, would be able to spend eternity with him forever. Amen? I mean, is that not something to be excited about? And we get to serve him joyfully until that time comes and submit to him knowing that his way is best. We don't have to worry about what we think. We can just pursue his way, his purposes, his plans for us. Doesn't that just take a weight off of our shoulders? I mean, praise God that he is good and faithful and and just and full of love and grace and mercy. This is what we can recognize by acknowledging him as our king. And that's something to be excited about. Scripture says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now we've got to recognize that there is no salvation apart from acknowledging Jesus as king. Without presenting our gold to him as the one in authority over us, we do not join the kingdom of God. And it can't be just lip service, right? Oh yeah, Jesus, yeah, he's my Lord and Savior, yeah. Yeah, Jesus. It's not how it works. Confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord means that we live our lives for him. That all of us, as the Spirit moves and works in us, because we can't do this on our own strength. This is all the power of God moving us and transforming us and refining us by the grace of God that we live for Him, overcoming all the obstacles of difficulty and distraction and disinterest and disappointment and dignity and submitting to Jesus in all things, trusting in Him in all ways, knowing that He will guide us to Him. When we truly acknowledge and submit to Jesus as king, our lives will be changed. Amen? Can we just say, praise God that we are not the same people today that we were when we first put our faith in Jesus? I mean, I was a jerk, and I'm just slightly less of a jerk today, which is good. There's process, improvement. Praise Jesus for being less of a jerk. But recognize in the passage, this is really cool right here at the end, that after the Magi worshipped Jesus, the Lord spoke to them and they returned home a different way. And this is exactly what happens to us when we bow our knees to Jesus as king. We will not walk the same way in which we used to walk because of the Holy Spirit transforming us. Amen? The Lord will guide us and lead us in a new direction, taking a new path that accomplishes his purposes and plans in our lives. And we can be filled with excitement and joy knowing that there is nothing better for us than what our king is doing in our lives. So as we close, I want to challenge all of us to think about our approach to this Christmas season. Are we genuinely excited to celebrate the birth of our king? Or have we come up against an obstacle that's keeping us from joyfully worshiping him? Maybe you're here today and 
like Herod, you're kind of outright hostile against Jesus. And you really don't want anything to do with him because you think he threatens how you want to live your life. He threatens your reign. Or maybe you're here today and you're like the people of Jerusalem. So you're like, yeah, yeah, Messiah is great, but you're kind of indifferent to what he's actually seeking to do in your life. And you're content in your own selfish pursuits. If, if you're here today in either of those two groups, you know what? I praise God that you are here. So that you can be made aware of the reality of your separation from God. That you are living in a different king's reign. Your reign. And it will end one day with your death. But praise God that that doesn't have to be so. Seek Jesus and give him your gold. Allow him to be the king of your life, trusting in him and his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, that you would be forgiven and set free to walk in the kingdom of God, unhindered by anything, empowered by the Spirit. I pray that every single one of us would learn to do that more and more. Walk by the Spirit of God following our King. I pray that every one of us would be like the Magi who saw the light and ran to it as quickly as they could, seeking the King of Kings through every obstacle and when finding Him, bowed down to Him in worship, submitting to Him as the Lord of their lives. By the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that we would be all wise men and women this Christmas season, laying our gifts at the feet of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.